3: My name is Kimberly Wilson. I'm a chartered psychologist and for several years I ran the primary care mental health service at Her Majesty's Prison and Young Offenders Institute, Holloway, which, though it's now closed, was at the time Europe's largest women's prison. Despite only making up around 5% of the total prison population, women account for around 20% of recorded acts of self-harm. Women who were self-harming and suicidal were frequently referred to my service for assessment and treatment, so it was my job to understand what factors contributed to increased risk of self-harm and violence. I started working at Holloway in 2007, and in 2009 a piece of research was published showing a significant reduction in prison violence with a clinical nutrition intervention. This paper was a replication of a 2002 study showing that improving prisoners' nutritional status reduced the incidence of violence by a staggering 37%. Now, evidence-based medicine, or EBM, is a framework designed to enhance the quality of clinical decision-making by creating systematic procedures for clinical research. The EBM hierarchy is used to assess the quality of evidence starting with conventional wisdom at the bottom and randomised control trials and meta-analyses at the top. Randomised control trials, or RCTs, are considered the gold standard in indicating causality in clinical research. So let's say you wanted to test whether a new drug was effective at reducing cholesterol in the blood. What you do is take a group of people, let's say 100, and randomly allocate them to two groups of 50. One group would be given the drug, this is called the active or treatment group, and the other would be given an identical looking but inactive pill that had no effect. This is called the control or placebo group. The key is that neither of the two groups know whether they are receiving the active treatment or the placebo, and ideally, neither do the nurses handing out the pills. Only the researchers will know which is which. This process is called blinding and it's crucial for reducing the risk of bias, that is the influence of your desired outcome, on the thing being observed. At the end the blood results of the two groups would be compared and any difference between the groups is likely to be caused by the treatment. This RCT procedure helps us to be more confident that any effect seen is due to the treatment rather than any other factor. Both the 2002 and 2009 studies I mentioned were RCTs. But our story doesn't start there. The backgrounds of prisoners differ from those of the general population. For example, despite making up less than 1% of the overall population, care leavers represent 27% of prisoners. Children who were taken into local authority care generally have been for their own safety. But since the studies in question were nutritional interventions, I wanted to know what role nutrition plays in brain development and behaviour. Dr Alex Richardson is the founder director of the UK Food and Behaviour Research Charity She has over 90 peer-reviewed publications, and her current research looks at the role of essential fatty acids on mental health and brain development. In a nutritional context, essential means that a particular nutrient is required for healthy function, but that the body cannot make it itself. It must come from the diet. Dr. Richardson's early work looked at the importance of essential fats in the visual system in dyslexia. She joined me in my London office to talk about the current scientific consensus on the influence of childhood nutrition on behaviour and academic performance.
1: So I always knew, and I knew from the children and adults that I'd been working with anyway and trying to help them to learn uh, what they needed to. that basically many, and they will tell you if you ask them, many people with dyslexia, and related conditions do indeed experience sometimes over visual discomfort when trying to read or they have particular problems as the print gets small or if the contrast is particularly um, bright. And with many of them, the subtle visual disturbances that um, John Stein and his team had already been studying, these can actually lead to the perceived mirror reversal And or shuffling of letters within a word so that if you are indeed trying to even learn to read by the good old look and say whole word approach, which was very popular in the 60s, let's not bother teaching the letter sound correspondences, let's just expose children to print and they will just absorb it. Yeah, some children will, but some of them absolutely won't and will need some help being explicitly taught the letter sound correspondences. But if you're just even trying to learn with a look and say approach, if the letters within that word are changing places and you never do get a stable visual representation of that word, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to be in particular trouble with spelling. And if there is one feature of dyslexia that persists almost no matter what, it is a, what you could call, a poor visual memory for words. Mm -hmm. So it was the visual side of things that took me into research in the first place. Doing my PhD, with now Professor John Stein, into visual contributions to dyslexia, and related conditions. Now, when I began to study dyslexia for my PhD or DPhil as they call them at Oxford, the overlaps between certainly dyslexia and ADHD, the overlap there is 30 to 50% in both directions. Although the aspect of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, the aspect of that that overlaps most into the dyslexia domain, are the attentional difficulties. Um, Then we've got dyspraxia, or developmental coordination disorder. Now, this one used to go under the rather unattractive label of clumsy child syndrome, (laughs) back in less politically correct days. (laughs) However, it's a lot more complex than that. But many children and adults Have difficulty with aspects of motor coordination, but dyspraxia, and that word itself, praxis means doing. So while you may have no problems at all with the thinking, no problems with the cognitive abilities required to solve a problem or whatever, putting into practice any complex sequenced action can be an area of difficulty. In a classroom setting, if the teacher can't read your handwriting, mm. if you're the child who can't even work out the complicated timetable and get yourself to the right classroom at the right time with the right bag and your books, or you fled the house with your shoelaces undone and half your papers missing. These sorts of difficulties, they may again just be seen as laziness, carelessness, but when you know some of the individuals involved personally and you know that nothing could be further from the truth, you do recognise that these developmental syndromes affect many, many people. Stop them from reaching their potential. And we've got to do better at recognising when it is some condition with a constitutional element. This is not a willful, you know, or a lack of will, not at all. But
3: this was... Well, it just occurs to me, as speaking, mm. I was speaking, it might be slightly off... on I might be barking at the wrong tree, but... The, if there's an overlap between dyslexia and dyspraxia, then we might be thinking again about that visual system, because mm. coordination is a, and proprioception are about being able to coordinate what you see with what you feel. You know, that is the hand-eye coordination. that
1: Absolutely. I... As I say, my motivation for doing research, going into research at all, was to try to do something that might help stop us from wasting at a society level, the potential potential. of exactly Mm. about at least one in five of the general population. And as I say, at an individual level, quite how much damage Mm. can be done, which includes damage to mental health, because if you are always the one who is either laughed at, ridiculed, you know, humiliated, or is simply failing at things that other children seem to find easy... Mm. Uh, and get praised for, you know, and you are always the one who's either in trouble or can't do this, even though you're trying. The damage this does has to be better recognised than it is now. And we've got to do a better job of making sure that our systems of education, but this extends as well to health and social services, and the area of criminal justice.
3: You sound very passionate about it.
1: Well, I think I've become more passionate even than I was to begin with as I see how much damage we are doing at every level to humanity and the planet, quite frankly, by not paying more attention uh, to these issues. And when it comes to, as I say, pro-social versus anti-social behaviour, if you are that child whose difficulties aren't being recognised for what they are and you're not getting the support and help that you need then what are your prospects? What is going to be happening to you? And again, one of the themes that became a major area, actually, of study in my PhD, I finished up adopting a co-supervisor from psychology to complement the neurophysiology input from the uh, John Stein side of things. But essentially the whole area of what this does to your own self-esteem, mental health, And again, the overlaps, if we look at the diagnosis of ADHD, for example, now at every level, actually, from genetics right through to experimental and other differences, oh my goodness, is there an overlap between ADHD and so-called mood disorders? Yes, there is. So you will find that the very same families where there might be ADHD recognised in one individual, you're going to find that depression and or bipolar disorder are going to be more common in those families. Now, that might indeed be telling us something, as the research suggests, about shared genetic contributions. But I really do wish that we paid more attention to the things... It's all very well focusing on genetics and some of my own research, again, mm-hmm. with John Stein in later years, and I was certainly postdoc. doc uh, We ourselves absolutely were involved in some of the leading research into the genetics of dyslexia. But again, there are no genes for mm-hmm. any of these conditions. Not as such, not at all. There's also an extraordinary amount of overlap between any individual gene that might account for, let's say, 5 or 10% of the variance, if that, of any of these developmental or mental health conditions. They're usually the same genes. It's quite remarkable. Across dyslexia, ADHD, through to depression, bipolar and even schizophrenia, what are we finding? That Oh, gracious me. But those genes themselves, firstly, they account for very little, of the variability that you find Mm -hmm. uh, within any population in these traits. But I think what most people don't appreciate is that genetic does not mean fixed. Mm -hmm. Genes are not and never have been destiny. I think one of the things that revealed that, rather strikingly, was when they finally did get round to, very impressively, mapping the entire human genome, but, oh my goodness, What an embarrassingly small number of genes human beings turn out to have. Oh, my goodness. Oh, dear, dear, dear. So, if we're going to look for uh, what really accounts for so much of the extraordinary richness and variability in the traits, features and abilities of humanity, we've got to look further than that. And again, genes do nothing without an environment. Then we have the issue of... To put it very, very simply, a gene is simply, if you like, a recipe for making a protein. But unless you've got the raw materials and the ingredients needed for that recipe, then, ah, it's not going to be able to do that. And here we're talking nutrients. And again, what we are not taught. This began to fascinate me, Kimberly, it really did. Firstly, the workings of the brain. Why aren't we taught as your wonderful book that's about to be published that's on really how fine. to build a healthy... brain. Yet, yeah, why aren't we taught this? Few things could be more important. It's, it's basic self-care. Absolutely but...
3: astonishing.
1: Yes, isn't it? So oh, yeah, and all those you're... neurotransmitters. Let's think about those because if we're going to manufacture dopamine or serotonin, does anybody tell you that you might need I mean, these so... nutrients in your well, diet? Don't. And vitamin B6, for goodness sake. Nutri- why don't we educate... The general public because this should be and you can put some of this on the primary school curriculum let alone the secondary school curriculum it's basic self-care really it is this i thought was pretty bad even then and i hadn't even got on to studying how it is that nutrition really does shape brain development and brain function and it does it at every stage of life my own research really only took the nutritional turn when it came to my attention, I'd been studying, of course, as I've said, how visual and attentional function really is an area we need to take into account when looking at many of the conditions like dyslexia, ADHD, and through to conditions like schizophrenia, which I was busy studying postdoc. But what I had not known until that point was that you absolutely cannot build a visual system in the first place without enough omega-3 fatty acids and specifically the long-chain omega-3 found in fish and seafood and in very few other foods in any appreciable quantity mm-hmm. long-chain omega-3 fatty acids absolutely critical and not just for building a visual system but for building the entire brain and nervous system one of those long chain omega-3 is called DHA docosahexaenoic acid It's found in fish and seafood. It should make up 50% of your retina. And if it doesn't, your visual function is not going to be what it should be. And so this, the moment I came to appreciate that there was a huge literature that had never yet been drawn to my attention as to how this particular nutrient could affect vision... I did decide this was worth looking into. And that was how I came to be the first person actually to do a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial to find out whether giving fish oils might help children with behavioral and learning difficulties like ADHD, dyslexia, and so on. Mm. To give a bit of background, in why are these fats so important for brain development and function? I've said that for vision, 30 to 50% of your retina should be one fatty acid called DHA that is really only found in fish and seafood but for the brain in general about 20% of the dry weight of the brain should be long chain omega 3 and 6 and they need to be in the right balance we, structurally they're found in every cell membrane but particularly the membranes of cells in the brain and nervous system and they help to ensure that those membranes are flexible and fluid enough to enable proper cell signalling because quite frankly, if the membrane is too stiff and rigid, and to put it very mm-hmm. simply, signals won't get in and out. Mm-hmm. But they do so much more than that because substances that we make from the long-chain omega-3 and long-chain omega-6, oh, my goodness, there is a super family of substances called the eicosanoids made from 20-carbon fatty acids like EPA, the long-chain omega-3, mm-hmm. arachidonic... Um, the main long-chain omega-6 but these derivatives these substances we make from long-chain omega-3 and 6 they govern almost every system that underlies brain and body health if we talk about your blood flow we obviously want blood that clots but not too easily so blood clotting this is one of the reasons that omega-3 are linked with heart health And therefore, if there was enough long-chain omega-3 in people's diets, they might not need so much of the anticoagulant medications that are widely prescribed to try to prevent things like heart attack and stroke, but also for your immune system. Because, again, derivatives of long-chain omega-3 are the most powerful natural anti-inflammatory substances that you're likely to find. And they keep discovering, actually, new derivatives. They didn't even know until... 10, 15 years ago, bringing inflammation to an end is an active process. Mm. And it cannot be done without substances called resolvins. Nicknamed resolvins because they resolve inflammation. But they're made from EPA and DHA. We've got the E series of resolvins from EPA, the D series of resolvins from DHA. So for something as basic as your immune system and the balance between pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory this to my mind is one of the most important things that everyone needs to know the modern western type diet that almost all of us are eating it is almost a wash with omega 6 fats these days from vegetable oils you also find the long chain omega 6 in foods like meat and eggs and dairy products milk, butter, cheese ready made and what we don't get in the modern western type diet is much if any of the omega-3 fatty acids so what we've got is an omega-3-6 balance that is massively tipped in favor of omega-6 and away from omega-3 and so in addition to the mental health effects which i'll have more to say about in a minute um, there are various physical health conditions which are already well known to go with Mental health conditions. If we take depression, the links with inflammatory disorders and cardiovascular uh, disease are incredibly well known and well documented. And the idea that neuroinflammation is one of the factors that can contribute to mood disorders and a lot of other mental health disorders.
3: We come back to her research on omega 3s and dyslexia.
1: So in the first pilot study, which involved children with both dyslexia and ADHD-type symptoms, what we found was that in the children who received the active supplement, providing fish oil, with actually a dash of evening primrose with some key omega-6, we found reductions in their ADHD-type symptoms compared with placebo. That means that parents were reporting, and teachers... Uh, in these children, fewer difficulties with attention and concentration, fewer problems with impulsivity and less hyperactivity and restlessness. There is no question that children who are having trouble with, well for starters, if you're finding whatever work you've been set is almost impossible because your perceptual system is jumbling the letters on the page and what are you supposed to do with this, you can see some reasons why behavioural issues you know, might arise simply from the boredom the frustration, mm-hmm. uh, the disaffection let alone if you're being told that you're lazy and careless and stupid a dietary deficiency of omega 3 fatty acids animal studies have shown this absolutely abundantly and while we've got to always be careful generalising from animals to humans so have human studies shown that with a lack of these omega 3 in your diet you are less able to pay attention. You are less able to inhibit impulse. And then if we link it to things like dopamine that everyone's heard of, a lack of omega-3 in the diet will deplete dopamine in frontal cortex, which is the very region of the brain where slow development, you know, is implicated in any conditions, including ADHD, where impulsivity plays a part.
3: I was interested to know about the practicalities of conducting this kind of research.
1: These areas trying to link nutrition to any aspect of brain development and function. They're not going to do wonders for your career in terms of the grants you're able to bring in or the work you're able to do. Because the biggest problem we find, actually, is, of course, getting the funding in the first place. And that's for the rather sad reason that in the domain of mental health, certainly, psychiatry, Mm -hmm. um pharmaceutical approaches it boils down to patent and profit so i think our challenge is to keep on trying to get our policy makers and state funded as well as charity funding because of course the Wellcome trust is one of the biggest funders of scientific you know research um in this country trying to get them to put priority on this area because yeah trying to obtain the funding trying as well to overcome the extraordinary ignorance if not denial of something which for some reason we really do have this just collective ability to ignore something as fundamental as the fact that your brain like your body can only be made of what you put in your mouth or what your mother put in hers while you were in the womb, you know, depending on the age of the individual. But how could it be otherwise? So why does our health system not prioritise teaching doctors and other health professionals, as well as trying to make sure the general public gets some information and education? This, to me, is such a major public health omission. It's grim, and it's got to change.
3: I asked Dr Richardson what she would like the public to know about the role of nutrition on brain and mental health and behaviour.
1: Well, I think some of the aspects of nutrition that are most important and most relevant actually to mental health and to this issue of antisocial behaviour, which comes in all sorts, um, if we start with the issue of sugar and refined carbohydrates and how much that impacts on your mood, your behaviour and your ability to learn. Because the brain is so reliant upon glucose as an energy source, how long it is since you last ate anything or drank anything before you start to feel changes in your ability to focus and concentrate as opposed to a general brain fog, irritability, and also, again, control of impulse. But fluctuations in blood sugar can be a major driver of behaviours which, if they're done in the wrong context, like the classroom or various other settings, are going to be seen as disruptive, antisocial, and will get you into trouble. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give one example here from the classroom setting. If little Johnny or Jenny on their way to school, because of course breakfast hasn't happened at home, or perhaps never does, are grabbing something sugary... The classic being the soft drink or the chocolate bar on their way to school. Blood sugar goes rocketing up when what you consume is essentially excessive amounts of sugar with no fibre, no fat, probably not even any protein to slow this down. Now, that means your body will then be pumping out insulin in order to clear that sugar from your bloodstream and, if possible, get it into cells where it might be burned for energy stored as fat of course if it can't but what it means is not very long into that school day your blood sugar will now start crashing down and when your blood sugar drops too low what most people don't know and I love explaining to them there is actually it's a life-saving mechanism but what is it that's going to kick in automatically if your blood sugar drops dangerously low and the answer is Adrenaline and the full-blown foot-on-the-floorboard cortisol stress response. So we now have little Johnny sitting in the classroom and, unbeknownst to him, this is simply just going to happen, suddenly his little body and brain are being flooded with adrenaline. And that essentially is behind what they tend to call the fight-or-flight response. But, yeah... So, how is this going to impact on Johnny's ability to listen to what the teacher might be saying or have told him to do? He's likely to be getting a little bit... Restless, if not impulsive, hyperactive, might suddenly find himself, yeah, out of his seat or doing something he shouldn't. But this again, it's an automatic response. So if you aren't able to control your blood sugar, and again, studies have been done to absolutely show that those who have good glycemic control are indeed able to inhibit impulse, perform better on those cognitive tasks, regulate their own mood, than people whose blood sugar is shooting up and down several times, probably a morning, let alone a day, on the blood sugar yo-yo that you will be on if most of what you eat is a sugar fix.
3: This stress response, which subjectively is likely to be experienced as anxiety, raises some quite interesting research questions about the potential relationship between diet and the rising rates of anxiety in young people. But it's not just what the children are eating. What
1: we haven't touched on is the early life business, and this is where it gets, if we're not careful, a little depressing, because the evidence is there that if mother's diet, before a child is even born, is the classic excess sugar, omega-3 deficient, oh no, you have just hardwired your child for the whole of its lifetime to have a higher risk of anxiety, depression and a range of other issues because we have epigenetic effects here. The effect of nutrition on whatever genes you inherit and the formation of the brain and nervous system. And one of the mechanisms there actually is yet another derivative of the omega-3 and omega-6 fats Endocannabinoids. These substances were undiscovered in the mid-90s. But the CB1, the cannabinoid 1 receptor, it's the most common receptor in the human brain. And when it comes to the regulation of everything from pain, temperature regulation, appetite, perception, cognition, the cannabinoids matter. And it is a cannabinoid mechanism that if mum is omega-3 deficient, then her children and even, as animal studies suggest, her grandchildren, oh no, are going to have a higher risk of difficulty regulating their own emotions and predisposition to anxiety and depression in particular, but potentially all mental health disorders. We have got to pay attention to maternal nutrition and really make sure that we support families. But we are stacking up problems if we don't do something about this, and the solutions could be so simple.
3: Dr. Richardson described her clinical research on improving behavioural outcomes in children, but I wanted to understand more about the relationship between breakfast, behaviour and school performance on the ground. Carmel McConnell, MBE, is a campaigner and the founder of Magic Breakfast, a social enterprise that provides free, healthy breakfast to children in areas of the country where a third of children qualify for free school meals. Eligibility for the government's free school meals programme is linked to whether the family are in receipt of certain benefits, such as income support or Job Seekers allowance. That is to say, of course, children from poorer families. I spoke to Carmel over the phone about how and why she decided to dedicate her life to making sure that children get a nutritious start to the day.
2: I was writing a book called Change Activist based on, you know, that that sense of let's look at social uh, our history of change in the world and look at these people who have led us from unfairness you know kind of british rule in india take one thing and one man with peaceful ideas and and clear purpose and a great ability to communicate and real love and compassion and a spiritual core had ended that that period of british rule that wouldn't have ended otherwise mm. and how did that happen and what can we learn from that and it was when I was doing the research I wanted to talk to, because I, I, I was running my business. I had a team in New York, a team in London, and I was advising all sorts of big firms on how do you lead change to build trust, and use technology so it's, so you're much more effective. And it was back in 2000. Um, and um, uh, someone said to me, oh, you're trying to write about, you know, different views of of." of you know, how the world looks right now, go and talk to some teachers. So I got five head teachers together in Hackney and I said, you know, for us in the city and for us in the business community, do you think that we're helping you to create a fairer as well as a, a, a richer society? You know, in the city, we are you know, focused on money. Some of us are trying to do it the ethical way as well. And and they're like, well, we've got, you know, every single person in my team, Carmel, every head teacher said,
1: Alright, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on
0: us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG.
2: If my teachers don't get food on the way in to give out their kids in the morning, you just cannot teach. And the most important lessons are taught in the morning. So if we've got any chance at all of maths at ten o'clock, they've got to bring in bananas, biscuits, because by half nine, ten, the hands are up and miss I've got a tummy ache or a, a child will be fainting or and I was like, really? I was like, really? I don't, You know, kind of, well, hang on, you know, breakfast is not expensive. Why aren't, why aren't the parents giving their children breakfast before they come to school? That's what you would do, right? And they're saying, look, Carmel, the parents are hungry themselves. You know, they're in insecure work. Their rent is like half their wages. Yeah, some of them are not very skilled when it comes to understanding food and nutrition. But for a lot of them, they haven't got any money. They run out of money. And so they just – the only thing that they can adjust down is it's not their electricity, it's not their rent, it's their food bill. And so some of these kids are coming in from homes without food, and they're in the bins in Tesco's. And one teacher, this lovely head teacher from a school in De Beauvoir, was saying – he said, Yeah, I'm, I'm in the in the calf asking for my, you know, skinny latte and I've got two of my year sixes saying, Please, have you got a sandwich? And uh, you know, with their little you know, little sibling on their hip saying, Have you got a sandwich? We just can we have something? And if they don't get that sandwich, he said, Well obviously if I'm there and I, I can, you know, pay for it but he said the kids on the way to school are so often late and not there at all because they're trying to find food. There's no food at home.
3: This story really hit home. Many of the women I worked with in Holloway described childhoods where they, as young teens, were left alone in the house to support younger siblings. These were children whose most basic needs had been missed by every adult they had encountered. They had fallen through the cracks.
2: And it was just one of those moments, these head teachers just saying that to me, and I, you know, I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that here I am talking about you know, lofty social purpose and business and blah, blah. And these, these teachers were just telling me that there was no way they could even even begin to do what they would trained for unless they brought in food because the kids were so hungry. I was so upset. I started. So I was like, like, you know, hunger two miles down the road to my office in Liverpool Street at that level. And I thought, well, this is if this is replicated across London, if this is replicated across the UK, what's going on? And so I just i just thought, I said, look, I i know nothing. I know nothing about nutrition. I know nothing. I'm not an educator. I haven't got any kids. You know, really happy to do something. I'll drop off some cereal, you know, and some food on Saturday mornings, and you can give it out as a thank you. So I went to Tesco's in Morning Lane in in, in Hackney on Saturday mornings and arranged with their caretakers. So I bought all their bagels and cereals. I must have thought I was a kind of interesting person for breakfast uh, you know i kind of cleared out the tesco morning lane breakfast supplies and dropped them off to these five schools um but being geeky you know being technology person i kind of said can we do some kind of baseline can i see whether or not this is useful to you or not and i said okay let's do it on um punctuality and how many fights in the first break i said great so we did that and You know, within the first two weeks, they had improved punctuality really considerably in all five schools, and they had seen a drop of about 30% in the first break fights. Just a a really big change. And also, within that first week, I had 25 other schools phone me and say, please. Um, The book came out. The book became a bestseller, and I gave the money, and I got my publisher to put money into getting food to schools. Mm-hmm. And I spent then two pretty frustrating years. I went home as well and and had a had a chat, and we decided that I was going to take us about of girl from work, and I was going to remortgage the house to give myself a couple of years working on this because I just thought I just like I'm just such a sad case if I'm talking about you know corporate values and going off and doing this, and actually you've got kids who are waking up hungry, and there's no nothing there for them at school because they've got they've got lunches they have to wait until they get their free lunch to have anything at all so that whole morning of learning if you happen to be unlucky enough to be in a home without food that just passed you by kids running down to the kitchen at half 11 to see if i can get something early mm. kids you know asking the teacher quietly can i have you got a biscuit i've got a tummy ache um kids being angry so much at the time because i mean it's, you know so many stories of, you know, teachers saying, oh, well, Zara, you know, when Zara kicked off, the whole school kicked off and she'd get in at quarter past nine and she'd be really, really angry and upset. And, you know, we just assumed that she was in a mood, like she, you know, that she'd been fighting or something. And she was nine and we found out that, you know, her mum was ill. There wasn't anyone at home that could get her up. She's got a younger sister. She had to find, she couldn't. there wasn't any food at home, so she would try and go and ask the neighbours. Sometimes she'd get food, sometimes not. And when she hadn't had any food, and hadn't had any food since the lunch the day before, she was obviously quite angry and upset. And so we gave her a bagel, a glass of milk, got her into your breakfast club, Built it up and built it up and, and now uh, Magic Breakfast on its own has got 483 schools uh, across the country and in Scotland and we feed 48,000 and the National School Breakfast Programme that I got by kind of pushing the government to do a bigger tender, um, that's in just over 2,000 schools and we feed um, about 318, 320,000 kids every morning on that so it's about you know, a third of a million. And, that, and that's good but we know that there's 1.8 million children in food insecure homes in this country and you and so i know that they've you know the the numbers of children that are um extremely vulnerable and without access to food at all is a very large number in this country we don't count hunger so i can't i don't know exactly but we know that there's you know the United Nations kind of report on The the state of the nation two years ago gave us that 1.8 million food insecure children. Mm. So we we, and and how it works, you know, the schools apply to us. Uh, Any child who wants a breakfast can have it in schools that are eligible, and they're eligible if they're on the government's IDACI list. That's the Index of Deprivation. Um, And there's eight and a half thousand schools in on that index, and all of those schools will be dealing with high levels of pupil hunger in the morning and we're only in you know 2000 odd so magic breakfast has still got um a a job to do you know um but at least i mean at least you know the the evidence in terms of the changes it makes is what enabled me to grow because we, we we just kept saying okay let's look at attendance punctuality concentration behavior uh Let's ask the children, you know, kind of let's let's sort of find out from the children themselves.
3: What does the evidence mm. say in terms of because what well, I'm struck, first of all, by that 30 percent figure um, in your life, mm. your first five schools, because that's mm. the same figure we're seeing in improved nutrition and reduction in violence in prisoners. That's the average. Mm. So there's this extraordinary mm. parallel there. But mm. from your school's experience, what is the impact on? I guess the two big indicators for life chances, which are uh, your ability to, to study and your academic performance and also mm-hmm. your socialising, your sociability or, or violence and aggression.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, we, we've we kind of... Um... We've done yearly surveys, and we also got the Education Endowment Foundation and the IFS to do a randomised control trial in back in 2016, and they showed that we had improved. It, it was kind of 50 schools held back from our support for a year, which is hard to do, and 50 schools on it, and then they did this randomised control trial. It's on the EEF um, website, and it, it showed that there had been significant improvements in in core subjects and in all of our in all of our kind of. We we used to talk about. The kind of um sats effect and it was you know the kind of the yearly sats and there's kids that were getting food from us and the schools are getting food from us were consistently doing better in those Sats results and and we've you know we, we've given children improved academic performance in all the schools that are based on based on what the teachers have come back with and that's kind of been um across the SATs are really the best way of telling uh, at primary school level. Um, we've had, uh, we had a, a round table in June where we brought a, a group of head teachers to talk about why we need legislation on school breakfasts, And we had good, good kind of government turnout and everything. And this was a group of head teachers who've all gone from being in special measures to being outstanding within uh, 18 months to two years and say it's as a result of magic breakfast support. Um, and so, you know, Sam Bailey, for example, had head teacher in a, in a school in Barnsley. She said, you know, 20 years of teaching. I didn't realise that all, the whole school was hungry. When we got that, we, we got the educational outcomes. We raised our attainment levels. We raised our ability to teach because the children were settled and ready to learn. There was not such a prevalence of unrest and disturbance in the school and therefore, we were able to focus on what the children needed, which was to be taught. And so, the two things were this kind of this surge in uh, overall performance in the school, and that was the bit that I was really, I really wanted to say. Look, there is, there are in these school communities where the whole school community is failing, and the academic results are at rock bottom. If you feed these children properly, and you respect that they, their brains and their, their, their young personhood has to be respected in a holistic way, and not just Whatever you are, you know we're all going to treat everyone equally. At nine o'clock, you've all got to just get on with it. It's just not fair because so many of the kids are coming in from homes where there's there's no food, there's limited uh, parental support, there's often no heating, there's no access to cleaning. Um, there's just uh, a, you're you're turning up, and if you've got if you've managed to get to school and you're seven, 11, 13, 15, 17, and you've got a home with no food, you've done incredibly well, you know, just to be there. So we've, we've like the big things are improved in tendons, punctuality, concentration, behaviour.
3: It's astonishing to think that these dramatic shifts, not just in individual behaviour, but in overall school conduct and academic performance can be attained simply by ensuring that children have enough to eat. What's in the breakfast, I wondered?
2: We've now got a deal with Heinz beans. I'm very happy about this. We've got loads and loads of beans. um no added sugar beans, of course, because we have to be on our anti sugar campaign at magic breakfast um but it's it's we've we've got beans, we've got um uh, a bagel with a good amount of wholemeal in it. We've got um porridge, and we've got diluted orange juice, and then the schools themselves they put in the staff and they put in spreads, so like you know an egg, some cheese extra things like, you know, kind of, you know, Marmite or, or, or Jam or whatever. And, you know, the whole thing is we're saying to the children every day, you're here today because you care about you. You're here for your future success. You're here today to prepare for your future success. You've got a brilliant school here. You've got people that care about you. All of these people around the Magic Breakfast family, we really, really want you to have a great day at school. You know, we talk about reach as a very core thing. You know, it's not just getting to the school. It's inside the school. It's having lots of teachers who are going to be champions and lots of children who are going to say to their friends, come along, you know, it's like, it's cool. You know, you can sit with your friends. You've got, you can do some colouring. You've got some sports after. The food's nice. It's not about, oh, I'm hungry. I'm desperate. I need to get this food. It's, it's, It's fun. It's there for you because it's fuel for learning. You know, our whole thing is fuel
3: for learning. That, that thing about involving the whole school, you know, not singling mm. out those 30 kids who are the clearly most deprived because the mm. stigma around mm. poverty and mm. around not having enough would mm. would be enough to shut most kids down, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah, completely. And, you know, I mean, I kind of, you know, you, you children feel any difference so acutely, any difference whatsoever, you know. And uh, I, you know, when I first started doing it and we'd get, get these babies and walk them around the playground, because it was before there was kind of breakfast clubs, so I was like, well, I'll just kind of walk the play- walk them around. And, um, the, you know, there's children that would kind of come up and they'd just put, you know, can I have a bagel? Yeah, of course you can, love. You know, and then put another bagel in their pocket, another one. And I'm like, well, you know, you can have as many as you want. And they're like, yeah, but, you know, this is for my mum later. This is for my brother later. You know, it's these children as carers, you know, these children who haven't got anything at all. And, and the first thing they're thinking about, rather than putting food in their own mouths, is very often who else they want to feed. And, you know, we see that in every single school. You know uh, that 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 was like Randall Palmer School over in Old Street. Head teacher's is gone now, but she's she was, she was she was amazing. She was the one who said, you know, this little boy, we 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 really had got to the end of our tether with him because he was so badly behaved, and he was about to be excluded. We couldn't do anything. And then, you know, one of the teachers said, well, ask him to be the you know the kind of the flower monitor or something to go to the breakfast club uh you know and and ask him to you know just have a bagel and a glass of milk while he's there and, and they, they just said it it was like magic it was like magic he suddenly you know kind of having a, you know just a bit of food first thing just feeling full first thing calmed him right down that little boy and i you know i i, I go on and on about it, but like kind of that little boy is if someone can up – If a child comes up to you in the street and says, look, I haven't eaten anything since the day before, please can you help me? I think there'd be very, very, very few people who'd say no. But across the country, again, because we've got this kind of, you know, we're preventing ourselves from seeing with a loving heart where these children are and what they need. But as soon as you say, look, come on, you know, all we have to do is give this child a nutritious breakfast, it opens up four hours of learning that gives them the chance to do well at school, gives them a the chance to go on to their best life. You know, it's and we can do that
3: breakfast for 30p, you know, delivered to the school for 30p, you know. Um, but it's not just the four and, hours of nah. learning, is it? Because it's, it's mm. he was about to be excluded and had yeah. he been excluded, then mm. we know that he would have had a much harder chance, a much more difficult time getting back into mainstream school. Um, yeah. He may yeah. have, gone to prus or he may not you know because often kids will fall through the gaps there and then totally and then there's a a real question mark about his opportunities going forward prus or prus are pupil referral units and we'll be hearing more about them shortly
2: i mean if you're naughty you're sort of you know, I don't know about you. I wasn't great at school. I was not great, and uh I, I was I encouraged to be. But <laughs> yeah, I you know. I mean, I was like, I was like, you know, exactly. And it's like you kind of think, oh my goodness, you know, how many times could you have kind of, you know, fallen through those cracks and things have gone in a different way? I mean, like, you know, mm-hmm. if, you, if you had if you had no no one around at all and no food and no access, and your home was, you know, a, a war zone, well, how, how would you keep going? You know, and so it's it's just it's just that extra bit for those kids. And what we do is a tiny part of the jigsaw. I bow down um, in awe every day to teachers and teachers, you know, who just keep the whole show on the road. The power of that nutrition to just give that child uh, the ability to be present, interested, Their teacher might be leaning into them at 10 past 10 with something that makes them go, oh, that's interesting. That might awaken interest in algebra that, that opens their lives or interest in coding or an interest in history or... They might think, "Oh, that's that like A river? Wow, what's a river?" You know, yeah. and I, you just want the children to be there for those incredible moments when something opens up their minds to, to, to you know, the wonder of learning.
3: You've hit upon it there. Well, two big things. Uh, right? So, one is how cheap an intervention it is for learning uh, and better behaviour. Uh, that you can provide a child a breakfast for thirty p, which you know, and I'm sure there's some. Um, A statistician that can can look at the costs of, you know, disruption in class or exclusion or monitoring exclusion orders and all of that sort of stuff. That the Mm. the comparative value of spending thirty p on a child for breakfast Mm -hmm. must just be such a saving for society. And you know, it's the same thing in terms of nutrition. Uh, in general, but in these cases yeah, in the present yeah. population, that for a few yeah, pence, yeah. the saving yeah. you can get to society and to the environment is just extraordinary. Absolutely. I mean, why would we not do it? Why would we not do it? You know, you say, why aren't we doing it? The the hurdles, ironically, that I think we come up against is is the simplicity. You know, mm. that one of the things that the researchers I've spoken to have have felt was the difficult thing was that it doesn't sound clever enough you know it's not we can we've created this new molecule or we've developed this new drug that can have this profound effect on people's behavior or their academic performance or their sociability or their wound healing it's Mm -hmm. we fed them ironically is this kind of resistance to the value and power of good nutrition in shaping the brain, in shaping behavior, and in having some of these more impressive results. So maybe
2: we should just market it differently, right? (laughs) But why don't we we kind of think about, you know, what would be, what would be, um, you know, uh, gives the people who need to get that thrill (laughs) <laughs> you know, give them their thrill. You know, like of, of I, this is you know something incredible has been discovered this during this this time. Yeah, something incredible, and it is you know no one has found it. And and give it to someone. I mean, I, I I found it very useful to give away the kind of the kind of the big ideas. Give it to someone else if mm. if it, if they're the ones that have got the power to make it happen.
3: I might keep that little piece of advice in my back pocket but I asked Carmel to summarise her experience.
2: Teacher after teacher has told us that that children were coming in uh, angry and upset or lethargic, listless, and that by having this bowl of porridge or having this uh, bagel with some fibre in it and some milk or some diluted juice, that they were either becoming settled and ready to learn or they were calming and being able to... um, The agitation that they were feeling in their physical body through hunger, through that kind of children, six, seven, eight, don't really know the word for hunger. And for many of our children, hunger is a normal state. Mm -hmm. So hunger being a normal state uh, means that they're not reporting being hungry because they're hungry so much of the time. But for, for children that do have hunger less often, they're telling us, they tell us that they've got a tummy ache. That's one of the things. So we work with teachers to help them to understand the signs of hunger in the classroom. And we know that there's sort of six or seven children in every class of 30 that are at risk of hunger in this country, up and down the country. And the most important thing that we're told time and time again is that these children are waking up in homes without food. They very often haven't had anything to eat since their school lunch the day before. The simple nutrition that we give them just gives their bodies the ability to take in the nourishment and their brain wakes up. I mean, the the name Magic Breakfast comes from a seven-year-old who said to me, Miss, you know, I honestly, I've just had this, I've just had my Weetabix and I honestly, I feel so different. It's like magic. Any of us, and especially a six, seven, eight-year-old child can only think their thoughts, only listen to their teacher when they've had some nutrition. So a hungry child can't concentrate, that's,
3: that's what we know. We know now that hungry children who are agitated and distressed by a lack of food are more likely to express disruptive behaviours. These behaviours, as we've just heard, may lead many of them to be suspended or excluded from school. I spoke to Sarah Dove to find out what happens to a child who is excluded from mainstream school. We start with the definition of a PRU.
0: My name is Sarah Dove. Um, I'm the president of the national organisation PRUZAP, which represents with referral units and alternative provision across the UK. Um, I've also had over 18 years experience in APs and PRUZ. I advise the government on serious youth violence, um, as well as the Youth Commissioning Service about appropriate provision for young people in secure settings. A pupil referral unit, often called a PRU, is for young people at risk of exclusion from school or those who have been excluded from school. They also include provision for children with medical needs who are too poorly to attend. The majority of reasons for young people attending PRUs are for those that are permanently excluded. So the local authority has responsibility for children after the sixth day of exclusion to provide education provision. So routinely they will be permanently excluded from school and require support in terms of having an educational placement. In other circumstances, it might be that the young people's behaviour is quite difficult to manage within the mainstream schooling setting and they're sent to peruse for what's called respite um, or short-stay provision in order for the school to look at ways of managing their behaviour.
3: I asked Sarah whether she was aware of any relationship between nutrition and risk of school exclusion.
0: Children eligible for free school meals might come from certain groups or certain geographical locations and more likely to be deprived by the nature of free school meals, mm. that you've got to be of certain benefits and so on. But even taking into account the children other characteristics children eligible for free school meals are four times more likely to be permanently excluded um, than those not eligible so even taking and controlling for those differences those on free school meals are incredibly more likely to be excluded
3: this is shocking that even after taking into account other factors associated with social deprivation children eligible for free school meals are four times more likely to be permanently excluded from school. I asked Sarah what's being done to support or protect these children.
0: So from, I think it was 2011, um, a sort of particular government policy was around what's called pupil premium. So children on free school meals um, would have their free school meals, would have their um, additional... Um, lunches, for example, provided for them for free. But the school were also given a sum of money to look at providing equality um, of education. Now, that pupil premium is a sum of money. And to give you a kind of sense of, of that, from reception to year six, that's about £1,320 for children with free school meals. will their school is entitled to pupil premium per year per child Mm -hmm. so you can imagine if you've got 10 children in a class on free school meals that starts building up to be quite a sum of money Mm -hmm. however the interventions and support for those children it is difficult to assess whether or not that money is really affecting Um, an improvement in in their outcomes or whether or not it's reducing exclusions either. Um, The Timpson review last year looked at some of these factors and had a range of recommendations to support schools Mm -hmm. in reducing rates of exclusion and improving outcomes for children, but that's yet to be enacted by government. Policy hasn't yet reflected what we understand about children having increased risk of exclusions in certain demographic groups or those entitled for free school meals.
3: So, there's a pupil premium of just over £1,000. Magic Breakfast can supply a healthy breakfast for around 30 pence per day. This works out to just under £60 per pupil for the school year. The feedback from the school suggests that this would be a worthwhile investment. But in the meantime, is anything else available at the moment?
0: Now we do have things such as the Healthy Start vouchers, which is free vouchers for um, certain groups to spend on milk, fresh, frozen fruit, and so on. Um, you have to be your entire if you have to be on certain benefits, um, or be under eighteen and be pregnant, and things like that. But that stops when you're four years old. Um, but also, there's not a sense of how are we helping communities be able to cook, develop relationships share experiences with their children to support them developing and growing up. I think we pocket families and we blame families um, for the way that their children behave. And then when children go to school, we blame schools about the way that children behave. But there's a lack of cohesion across the different systems where policies match up. We tend to sit as professionals in different silos and go, this is my job. My job is to educate children, um, and rightly so and forget about the wider picture. Schools that do better position themselves as part of the community and see themselves as having responsibility for not just the children within their schools, but the parents and the wider community itself.
3: What are the outcomes for children who do end up at Pruise? Do most of them end up going back into mainstream school? Do they go off into kind of different routes of education or into work? Do you know anything about the split?
0: In terms of outcomes, um, if a child is excluded in year 11, so at the age of about 15, 16,
3: mm-hmm.
0: then there is less time in which to make a turnaround for that for that support. And that means that their outcomes in terms of GCSEs um, may be reduced. So there's a, there's a big concern um, that pupil referral units, the children that go through them don't get positive outcomes but there also needs to be a factor that actually they've been in mainstream school for x amount of time and may not have got the support that they needed so therefore their outcomes aren't going to be as good because you might only have a year to work with them that can be one thing but also that some of their behaviors can be quite entrenched so then trying to turn that around in a short amount of time can be quite difficult Um, in terms of transitions generally if a child attends a pupil referral unit say when they're in primary school, which is quite shocking, I think, if a child is excluded from school. Often they, um, there's an assessment process for what's called an educational healthcare plan, which um, in old money used to be called a statement for special educational needs, um, and they might go to specialist provision. Um, or that they might have additional support in a mainstream school to support them. So in terms of those outcomes, they're probably more positive because there's a framework in which how, how we should be walk, uh, working with that child an assessment of their needs and what would be helpful for them. Um, in terms of overall outcomes, we know that those in the prison population um, are more likely to have attended a pupil referral unit. But it might be because their behaviours have been so entrenched Mm -hmm. in terms of that antisocial behaviour, criminal activity and so on, that actually they were already in that trajectory, whether or not they went to a pupil referral unit or not. Mm -hmm.
3: So, children who attend PRU's are more likely to offend and be imprisoned. Sarah makes the point that these children are likely to have had long histories of difficult or disruptive behaviour. So from her perspective, what needs to be done?
0: It has to be a, a policy change throughout the systems. You can't just situate it within education mm. and then forget about benefits and community and um, NHS and everything else. We, we should all be working together. And as early as possible. So things like the Sure Start, the Healthy Start vouchers, the Sure Start community centres working together, children's centres, I think have a vital part to play. I think if we have early intervention, early support, then that's going to be a better model than waiting for children when they're 15 and permanently excluded. Now we can't forget those children mm. because they're incredibly important as well. So we can't just go, okay, well, you know, you're already down that route. And only concentrate on the the three four Mm five-year-olds there has to be a system which meets the needs of those children at the beginning but also factors in the fact that for some children we need to have more intensive support at the later stages
3: were you aware of the um in both sets of populations of the research on nutrition and behavior so in terms of the research and on the role of nutrition in prisons but also in children's um externalizing behaviors were you
0: no i wasn't particularly knowledgeable that, of that at all which again is worrying isn't it because i talk about exclusions all the time and there's a piecemeal information around maslow's hierarchy of needs so you have to feel that you belong and that you know there's certain prerequisites met but did i know about that particular research no am i going to use it now yes
3: so where does that leave us There is a strong body of good quality clinical evidence showing that nutrition is important not just for brain development, that much should be obvious, but also for modulating behaviour, reducing impulsivity and aggression and helping children to concentrate. This research evidence is borne out in the experiences of the schools working with Magic Breakfast and other school breakfast programmes. Conversely, Children who cannot control their behaviour are more likely to be excluded from school and excluded children make up a higher proportion of the prison population. That is certainly food for thought. In the next episode, we look at the evidence for the role of nutrition in impulsivity, aggression and violence in prison. Thank you for listening. This podcast includes content funded by the British Podcast Awards Fund and the Wellcome Trust. It was written and hosted by me, Kimberly Wilson, produced by Sarah Hashem, with music composed by Juan Iglesias. You can find details of all episodes and contributors at kimberlywilson.co forward slash crime and nourishment.